Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Home, written and recorded by Alex Ebert under his alter ego, Edward Sharp. The Golden Globe-winning founder of I'm a Robot and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros will join us in a bit to talk about his influences, his various incarnations, and his eclectic new solo album. Part one. Well, my friend, uh, we just had the Super Bowl. Yep. Um, but for guys like me, the Grammys is the Super Bowl for uh, <laughs> right. for for music people. Right. Did, you, did you watch? I did not watch the Grammys this year. What? I didn't, and I'll tell you why. Um, my wife left town for about eight days. Right. Um, that was the first day of it, and I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> and have you seen the movie Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton? I have. Uh, it was a lot like that, except <laughs> that movie was only two hours, and my eight days was nine years. Um, so, <laughs> no, I did not watch the Grammys. Uh, I checked. I some. did not bathe. I did not <laughs> totally. go anywhere. <laughs> totally. Um, so, uh, but I heard that they happened. Yeah, they they did. They did, <laughs> um, and it was cool. Um, actually, uh, it, it was fun. I mean, I'll be honest. Sometimes I kind of watch the Grammys and fast forward. Yeah. You know, I hit the parts that I'm interested in. I kind of skip on through the stuff that I'm not. But even in fast forward, I spotted Paul Williams in mm. the audience. I'm like, hey, man, former Songcraft, Songcraft guest. Songcraft guest, yeah. Natalie Hemby, who, by the way, was nominated for Song of the Year. I saw her in the audience several times. I'm congrats like, dude. to her. Yeah. Congrats, Natalie. Um, former Songcraft guest. Smokey Robinson saw him in the audience. Then he was on stage. I'm like, yeah, Songcraft Jeez, guest. Man. Yeah, it was cool to sort of uh, to make the connection of like, look at all these people that are in the room at the Grammys that we've had the opportunity to uh, to, to talk. So with. the formula here is appear on Songcraft, then become famous. Yeah, I think that's how it has you, worked. If you appear on Songcraft, <laughs> you will end up on TV. Just ask Smokey Robinson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but actually, I was gonna tell you because we haven't seen each other in in a couple weeks because no. of previous uh said child care responsibilities <laughs> it was only a couple weeks <laughs> um but uh, i went to this party the night before the grammys called the whammies and they've been doing it for eight or nine years and this is the first time i've ever gone but it's basically put on by uh danny harrison um george harrison's son yeah. and his business partner david uh in dark horse records and they basically get a house band and then they bring on all these people as guest singers. So this year, the theme was Traveling Wilburys. Awesome. So people could do songs by, you know, Orbison. They could do songs by George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, you know, Jeff yeah. Lynne, obviously. So, um, man, it was great. And the the house band was so good. And it was in a tiny club. And it was a 1,000 degrees in there. Everybody was sweaty <laughs> and packed in. It felt like everything about music that you're supposed to love and, totally. and, and not sort of like all the pomp and circumstance of right. the Grammys, all the production, you know, yeah. but they had like these random guest artists. Jewel came out and sang Perry Farrell came out and sang, nice. 
Um, Richard Marks sang Running Down a Dream and played guitar. This sounds eclectic. <laughs> it is eclectic. Weird Al did an incredible wow. version of Breakdown, oh, which was that. unforgettable. LP came out and sang It's Over by Roy Orbison and totally killed it. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was just, you know, Jacob Dylan and like all these people. And it was literally just like watching a great bar band with these guest singers get up and perform. And it kind of reminds you like, yeah, the love of music. Like yeah. that's what the whole thing's about. It still exists. Know? Yeah. Um, but again, w- at that thing, I'm like, okay, here's LP, um, you know, singing a Roy Orbison song that was co-written by Joe Melson. You know, he's song been on our show. Yeah. And Perry Farrell and, and his wife are doing I Drove All Night as a tribute to yeah. Roy Orbison. Billy Steinberg. Billy Steinberg, yeah. yeah. And, and it, again, I'm like, there's all these connections. And it's, you know, I think people don't always think about who wrote, you know, such and such song. And they just kind of right. know they like it. But when you're connecting those dots and, and aware of it, it's it's cool just to be. I, I think it's nice to just be aware of like, hey, I know who wrote this song. I yep. kind of know the story behind it. You know, and everybody in the in the club is going crazy because they love the song. But um, I, I was just reminded, like, how cool is it that we get to do this? It's amazing that we get to do this, and it's it's. Uh, I I feel like with every guest and with every conversation, this this mission gets a little more deeply confirmed. You know, um, and, and to see that you're talking about those kind of legendary songs, yeah, that all these musicians are inspired by and wanting to do versions of. That we're sitting here talking about the stories of where they came from. Um, it does. It feels like we're really kind of connected to the whole the whole story of music in a way, right. you know? Yeah. And it's part of what makes me so appreciative for those listeners, and, and I, I want to speak directly to y'all, who, who have supported us on, on Patreon, um, you know, from, from day one, since yeah. we first started the Patreon campaign. Um, and just, just so you know, it, this, this really helps uh, keep this thing going and for us to continue to have these conversations about songs that matter, and not just the songs that matter to us, but songs that matter to the world. Yeah. Um, artists and writers that matter to the world. I mean, Smokey Robinson is a national treasure. Right. Um, and so, in a way, as much fun as we have doing this, it does feel like this sort of, you know, this uh, this great role in the story to be able to share his his insights. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to those of you who haven't taken a look at how you can support us on Patreon, it's super simple. Um, Patreon.com backslash songcraft show or just slash songcraft show for the youngins who don't feel the need to say backslash anymore. <laughs> You're that that's so old. <laughs> I know I aged myself. <laughs> it's on the World Wide Web. Um, so pull up, uh, fire Netscape, up Netscape Navigator <laughs> totally. uh, web crawler yeah, or whatever. We've got you... a GeoCities uh, <laughs> songcraft page, but um, seriously, it's it's easy to support. The the tiers are not too high. Um, if you did just happen to sell your castle in the Andes and have a couple <laughs> extra million, that's fine too. But for right. for most people, <laughs> the the smaller tiers are, are how they like to get involved. And for the different levels, there are rewards. Um, you know, Patreon's really cool. Um, I, but, I always say it's like it's like public radio. Yeah. You know, you know when the public radio has the fun drive and you switch to the other channel. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, public radio is yeah. there for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. And uh, and you for know. only seventy five dollars, you can get a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Songcraft is here for everyone to enjoy, and we don't want to uh, put the uh, put the guilt trip on anyone or anything like that. But we do very much appreciate the the people who do yeah. um, support us on Patreon. It does help us just cover the expenses and keep getting to to do uh, this thing. So we thank you um, to those of you who have uh, have contributed, and and if you're thinking about it, then go to uh, Patreon.com/slash/SongcraftShow and and find out more about it, and you know think about it and uh whether you decide to to 
pull that trigger or not. We are uh, still happy to have you here as a, a Songcraft listener, and yeah. we consider everybody part of the part of the Songcraft family. And uh, hope we haven't made you feel as guilty as Wikipedia makes me feel sometimes. <laughs> we we could probably learn a thing or two from old Wikipedia. Um, but anyway, uh, segueing out of of that uh, conversation, yeah. um, had this great uh, chat the other day with with Alex Ebert. Again, you were in uh, Child Vortex. I was uh, neck deep in goldfish crackers. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and other things we won't speak of. Yeah, um, and so I, I did this one solo. Um, I told Alex uh, when he got here, I said, "Hey, man, I, I normally have a, a co-host, Paul." He's got some childcare issues. He normally <laughs> runs the Pro Tools. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm a little nervous. I'm yeah. not the tech guy. And he's like, oh, I could do it if you want. I'm really good with Pro Tools. <laughs> like, what a cool a guy. Kind offer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the, the, so the guest almost became the co-host. But That'd be amazing. Uh, I said, okay, well, let me try it. And I may, I managed to not screw it up. So, uh, But uh, Alex Ebert, nice dude. Sweet. Well, uh, the the music speaks for itself. Uh, just a, an incredibly original writer and artist. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys had to talk about. Cool. I think you'll like it. Part two. The always prolific Alex Ebert is best known as the lead singer and songwriter of two bands, I'm a Robot and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. I'm a Robot established Ebert as a melodic post-punk artist with songs such as Dynamite, Creeps Me Out, and Greenback Boogie, which was used as the theme song for the television show Suits. Switching gears for his next group, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Alex found a new platform with a wide-ranging palette of musical influences that gained critical acclaim and built a large fan base thanks to the use of songs such as Home, Man on Fire, Better Days, and others in a variety of commercials, films, and TV shows. The group has released four studio albums to date, including Here, which was named by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the top ten best albums of the year. In addition to recording and touring, Ebert is also a Golden Globe-winning composer who has scored a number of films, including All Is Lost, starring Robert Redford, A Most Violent Year, starring Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain, and the Oscar-winning Disney animated short film Feast. Alex has just released his second solo album under his own name, I vs. I, which is available now wherever you listen to music. Alex, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you so much. Um, you've just released I vs. I, your second solo album under your own name, um, but you are definitely a prolific artist and writer with multiple albums under the band names I'm a Robot and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, not to mention your work as a composer for a number of, of film projects. Um, I'm curious to what degree your musical personalities are are integrated, and I guess what I mean by that is if I were to go to an Alex Ebert show, am I going to hear I'm a Robot songs? Am I going to hear Edward Sharp songs? Or does does each thing kind of live in its own silo? I think especially at an Alex Ebert show, <laughs> uh, you'd hear everything. Hmm. Um, you'd hear a bit of everything because those that's um, that's me, the songwriter. You know, that's me, the um, the musician. Um, so yeah. The, there's there's compositional work for score and film um, that I bring into a show. There's um, there's structures and elements of I'm a Robot stuff, which was really sort of hardcore, um, sort of like pop punk. I don't even know what the hell that band was yet. I still am <laughs> wrapping my head around the sound of it. Um, it's almost like existed in a you know lateral 
multi-dimensional sort of, you know, some other universe. Hmm. Um, but the songs, the skeletons of the songs are really pretty great. Um, so I have this longing to want to sort of reappropriate them with an acoustic guitar or whatever. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I don't silo myself, actually, even though it really looks like I do. Hmm. Um, in fact, part of my sort of method of constantly changing my moniker has been to create a bit of a slop and to also sort of um, shuck off any um, any weight of branding that I might feel as an artist where I have to stick to one particular sound or another, but rather to sort of slough off that 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 branding sort of um, albatross and, mm. and really just follow the muse wherever it goes. Huh, yeah. Well, when I listen to the kind of the breadth of your, you know, musical expression... I'm reminded of an artist like David Bowie, who was able to kind of slip in and out of, of genres and, and personas, but, you know, to do it credibly, it doesn't feel contrived. It feels like, oh, these are all expressions of, of, of this one guy. Um, and, and you've obviously managed to carve out multiple musical spaces for yourself, um, given that, given that you, you don't necessarily see them as siloed and, and you see them as, as related, though maybe messy, um, is there kind of a through line? Is there a theme to your writing that, that connects all of it in your mind? Man, that would have been a lot easier for me to answer a couple years ago. Um, I think there's always a striving um, for exploration. Um, even if it's just a silly pop song, I want to say something, as an artist in general, the way that I view creation um, is where is my contribution going to be the most relevant? Where, where can I contribute the most to society? Hmm. And I see society as this sort of tapestry, and I look for the holes in the tapestry. Maybe it's a hole that's always been there, maybe it's a hole due to recent neglect, um, as is the case, how I felt about home, that song. Um, but I'll look for sort of holes, like where, where has, where have we been overlooking? Where are we not, um, where are we not filling in? What what areas um, have we been sort of neglecting, hmm. or have we not seen into yet? And then try and you know create a fabric that fits into that, into that space. Um, so essentially, I guess the effect being for my own, for myself that I feel like I'm of service on some level, that the huh. music is somehow being of service. It's saying it's providing something that you didn't already have. Hmm. And, and I think that in a lot of ways that also is the reason why I didn't do Home Part 2 huh. um, because I had already done it and I didn't want to um, sort of iterate on on my successes. I didn't want to sort of make myself a, you know, I wanted to, I always want to be careful of that branding thing and sort of repetition of success, mm -hmm. but which also leads me to, to constantly want to fill in holes that maybe not are currently filled in. So yeah, it's sort of, um, it's a double-edged sword because it's prevented me from a certain kind of success actually. Right. Um, I was going to say it's, it's like a high bar as yeah. a songwriter yeah. because you, 
you've basically set the standard of I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to always be forward thinking or yeah. always pushing into a new area, which when you're also balancing touring and, and all the other things that life demands, it's got to be a challenge to kind of yeah. stick to that mortgage statement. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mortgage, <laughs> uh, diapers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it is a challenge, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty rewarding because if you can create success anew, then eventually you have to understand that it's not necessarily the particular luck of the brand you happen to strike on at one time, but it's you. Mm. It's something about what you are doing. Yeah. Well, I'm always fascinated by how songwriters' instincts were developed and, and what, you know, early influences caught their ear and would shape them rather, you know, consciously or unconsciously into the, the writers that they would become. Um, can you talk a bit about the music that first caught your attention as a kid in terms of, you know, really the stuff that, that excited you and you think ultimately kind of informed your artistic impulses? Yeah, there were there was three things. Um and they were in pretty rapid succession. When I was really little, um, Pavarotti was my um, my idol, hmm. and I had this statue, wooden statue of Buddha, um, with a with his belly out and his hands up, um, and I thought that was Pavarotti, who I called Pavotti, <laughs> right. and um, and I would tell my dad all the time to put on Pavotti, and it was this really big influence for me for whatever reason because my dad, my grandfather is a, was like a really well-known uh, opera director hmm. and my dad also really into opera so that was my first musical sort of uh, experience was just all this operatic stuff right and um and there was something about the drama of it that i really understood and then right after that elementary school was um at the time i didn't understand that it was a big influence but when i eventually came to edward sharp and the magnetic zeros post i'm a robot feeling like completely dejected, com like really over the major label thing. We were on Virgin Records. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had lost all instinct and all understanding of why I was even doing music to begin with. And so I started thinking back, well, when was the, when, when did I make music for no reason? Hmm. And I had to think back and back and back and back and back. And finally I landed in elementary school at this um, this music class that was part of our every our daily thing yeah. with this woman Ruth and she would just play a acoustic guitar and uh, all the kids would just bang on tambourines sing out a tune at the top <laughs> of their lungs yeah and we'd sing just songs and that became my inspiration yeah. for Edward Sharp and the Mike. I was like ah. Oh. Yes, just the purity of sort of the sing-along, the right. expression, the communal, the communalized, like, sort of um, medicine of music. Yeah. Um, so that was number two. And then number three was, um, I was, I'll never forget, I was at my friend's house. He had a pool. I came in from the pool. I went into his bedroom. I looked on the wall, and there was this poster, and it was... It said on, on the bottom of it, giant poster, it said, Run DMC. <laughs> and I was like, what is that? Who right. are they? And for whatever reason, they, I remembered that name. I told my I knew it was music. Yeah. <laughs> and I told my mom, like, to take me to the Tower Records, and I got a cassette. And it was Run DMC, Tougher Than Leather. Right. And that completely changed my life. I, I had a cassette. 
I would go on these long road trips with my father, and all I would do is sit there, press play, pause, rewind, play, pause, like just memorizing lyrics. Wow. So, so inspired by the, the wordplay. Hmm. Um, and that basically became my first music that was like mine. Right. And hip hop, I mean, I was so into hip hop that when, you know, Guns N' Roses came out, I... I only knew it because it was in the movie Lean On Me. I had no, <laughs> I didn't know anything about rock and roll. I didn't care. Yeah. Um, it was all hip hop until about 96. Yeah. And so I started falling out of sorts with it. And, um, and slowly, like I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll listen to Bob Marley. Like, right. <laughs> let me try out. Right. Like, who's I'll Frank take Sinatra? Some steps out <laughs> yeah, there yeah. and see. Yeah, <laughs> just who are these basic people that I have totally missed? <laughs> right. Um, right. And wow. uh, and that and then and then I found punk rock and and that kind of became my new hip hop. Yeah. Um, and then that basically started this weird hybrid that turned into I'm a Robot. So that that's sort of my musical journey. Yeah. Um, I understand that your father was a psychotherapist. Yeah. And your mother an actress. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of kids who wind up growing up and, and going into music, um, it's almost like a reaction against the more um, sort of stifled environment in which they were raised. But you're talking about two professions that your parents represent that are all about self-expression. Totally. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting to I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about how, you know, that real openness and encouragement of self-expression at a very young age, you think impacted your you know, ultimate instincts as a songwriter. Yeah, I mean, my rebellion, my real rebellion occurred after I'm a Robot, when I, I, was, I was a part of the status quo, actually, with I'm a Robot, in terms of the kind of expression that's acceptable with rock and roll, mm -hmm. uh, especially youthful rock and roll, and especially in the 90s, um, which is to say... Um, somewhat self-destructive, um, certainly um, everything that is the opposite of earnest, um, ironic, pessimistic, sarcastic, um, sardonic, um, but certainly not earnest. Um, there, was a, there was a few like anomalies in the 90s, but especially as in my world, um, you didn't smile for joy on stage. Right. You smiled if you just got cut, and you were bleeding, right? But you didn't smile because you're so happy to be here. That would be lame, yeah, right? <laughs> and and that was the world I was coming from. And so my big rebellion and my moment of courage was embracing, well, the importance of being earnest huh. and the the and joy and celebration and just being a child at a show and tell on yeah. stage and not being a rock star. And um, that, that to me is the courage that I learned of expression that probably I ended up learning when I was a kid mm -hmm. that I didn't quite reconcile until way later. Interesting. That I had the, that I was encouraged to express my feelings, mm. that it was okay to cry yeah. or that it was, um, you know, use your words, like all that sort of hippie, um, you know, new age, uh, fancy child rearing. Um, <laughs> right that um that i was able to sort of um i think that helped me in the end to be mm. to be at a place where i was able to finally 
embrace something that really felt scary. I mean, to be honest, like doing sort of joyful celebratory songs coming from where I was coming and also knowing the landscape of culture at the time um, was uh, challenging and it challenged my ego, it challenged my whole sense of social anxiety and mm. what's acceptable in rock and roll. And, um, and it was really, it was cool. That was my punk rock. That's the yeah. funny thing that I feel like no one really, like, especially the sort of the guards of culture, like critics that like, you know, are so entrenched in this sort of like leather coat, like, you know, um, badass mentality that saw us as like this, like super lame, like, you know, but what they don't understand is when the status quo is one thing, whatever is not that thing is, is the punk rock. Hmm. That is hmm. the rebellion. Right. Um, and so my rebellion was being a child, like <laughs> right. going back to my elementary school class and yeah. just banging on a tambourine yeah. and being earnest about, hey, like, you know, um, I actually kind of want to be happy as a person. <laughs> you know <laughs> right. what I mean? Um, That's fascinating because it, it's... You hear a lot of people like to in order to for me to to fully be realized as an artist, I have to leave behind the type of values or dysfunctions or whatever I, I grew up with as a kid. And yours is like the inverse of that is like in order to fulfill my myself as an artist, I got to go back <laughs> yes. to what I was what I originally was. Yes, totally, totally, <laughs> totally. It was a total return, which is the funny thing. You know, it's like um, really it was a deviation. The whole I mean, look, my dad was a raging asshole, so let's not, like, you know, he was sort of like the sin eater. Um, great therapist, um, always encouraging freedom of expression, running around naked, making everyone uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, but when it came time to, like, maybe do his own therapy or whatever was going on, when he came down from his sessions of hearing people, and he did something called drama, was it called drama? Drama, psychodrama, hmm. where he would pretend that he was your father, and he'd oh, say, yeah. "What do you want to tell me?" Yeah, yeah. And so I would hear up like I'd muffled screams, like, Fuck! <laughs> and he <laughs> right. had these things, these pillow swords, and they'd hit, they'd hit him. Wow. And he would like absorb all this energy, and he'd come down, and he was just not. Yeah. Like he was a little cuckoo when he'd come he down. He didn't know and, how to release that. No, he released it right onto me yeah. usually, and um, so there was. There was like it wasn't like a chill household, right? But um, but the freedom of expression thing was encouraged, yeah. And I yeah. think that I did come back to that, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to go back, you know, recognizing that hip hop was kind of your first musical love, um, and you talked about kind of you weren't aware of all these other things, and and ultimately you went out, started learning other music, and and we get, you know, I'm a robot, um, you guys put out your your first major label single um dynamite that song is you, know, you have these punk elements there's kind of electronic elements straight up guitar rock um but with that song and that first record i mean to me it's it's pop music i mean mm -hmm. you know you can put all these adornments on it but it's melodic it's it's you know you're you're writing pop songs i'd love to kind of dig down a little more into the elements of how 
you kind of made that transition not only from hip hop guy to punky rock guy, but hip hop guy to real melodic um, writer. Um, I, basically, I was making, we were all making like this art punk um, for years. Uh, just this weird hybrid of stuff. And the choruses would take five minutes to get to, or they wouldn't, or they would never <laughs> happen. We were just making stuff, and it was an amazing, hyper-creative time. And then we started to feel like, okay, we want to get signed, and we want to do this. Yeah. And we h- hired a manager, and um, she sat us down, and she was like a big wig, and, and we were like, you know, kids. And she sat us down, and I'll never forget, she looked at us and she said, if you guys want to make it, you have to take it up 18 notches. There's some arbitrary <laughs> notch, notch <laughs> number. Not 17. Not 17. But I was like, I was so infuriated hmm. that this person was telling me that, it, that I had to take it up 18 notches, the songwriting, that I went home and that within three days I'd written the three songs that got assigned. It was Dynamite, a song called Alive, and I think another song um, called Scream. Mm-hmm. I'd never written like pop songs like that before. Wow. It was totally out of spite. Wow. I was like, fuck you. You, you think I can't write a <laughs> pop song? You think I'm like actually, like I'm doing all this art on purpose, yeah. but fuck you, here we go. Wow. And I went home and wrote those songs like... And we got signed like two weeks later. Wow. And um, I mean, that's amazing to me because Alive in particular of those is real pop. I mean, it's great pop construction, you know. Totally. hadn't been doing no, it. No, it was there. like it was there. It yeah. was there. Yeah. It was there. And, and and what's funny, and we didn't get signed two weeks later because we had time we we but we did get signed really quickly after that, like maybe a month, a month and a half. We learned the songs. We did a showcase. We got signed. We even yeah. had a little bidding war. We got one of those last really big deals. Um but the songwriting um yeah was there. But what that kicked off for me was uh, about four years of writing songs for basically for other people, huh. writing songs to satisfy this success threshold. The machine. The machine. Yeah. And um, and yet, those are the songs. I look back, I'm like, I'm impressed with those songs hmm. now, yeah. still. Those are the songs I think like, oh, well, I'd go, I'd love to take an acoustic guitar to those songs. Yeah. Um, and just sort of play them. Um, and... I think I think you know there's something to be said for being for for experiencing a sense of challenge yeah and 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 also for competition you, you hear those famous stories about you know like Sergeant Pepper being in response to pet sounds right um, which I, I love those those moments where you're like oh oh you're gonna do that <laughs> okay then I'm gonna do this right. and, and I think that that's sort of part of the creative process. But where that eventually led me was to a place where 
I stopped remembering how to do the thing where I just make songs for myself for the love of it. Mm, yeah. And that was a precarious place to be in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, after two albums with I'm a Robot, you released Up From Below, first album under the name Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros in 2009. Um, I listened to the debut single, 40 Day Dream. Very different aesthetic than, obviously, what you've been doing in I'm a Robot. <laughs> it was time for you to kind of get back to music for the joy of, of making music. Um, I'm sure you've talked about this many times before, but as an artist and, and writer, why was it important for you not only to kind of, you know, switch directions, but to create a completely different persona and a completely different name as opposed to just, say, putting out a solo record at that point? Yeah. I felt really lost, man. I... After the process of making the second I'm a Robot album was sort of the classic major label forced me to work with a particular producer. It was an awful, awful, mind-blowingly, mind-numbingly awful, psychedelically terrible acid <laughs> trip of an experience hmm. um, that left me really just like depleted of instinct. I said yes to various things and I went and did things that felt wrong and went against my instinct for so long that I really felt like I was at a place where I didn't know anything about who I was, who Alex Ebert was. I, I just didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, I felt like a robot. It was this odd, self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm. And um, so... In some ways, so this character, Edward Sharp, and this thing, The Magnetic Zeros, were actually, it was a, a novel that I'd begun writing when I was 24, and in the novel, the character, Edward Sharp, um, can see uh, space and everything as strings. And then I found out about string theory later, but he can play everything as strings and everything as music, and the mathematics that he sort of discovers through the process is called Magnetic Zeros. And it's this pendular mathematics, and I had I had this whole structure and this 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 equation in my brain, and it was right. from a long time ago, and it was this sort of um, this mythos that stayed with me. And so when it was when I finally started exploring and re-exploring, I, I, I was the that name just sort of came to me, and for whatever reason, that's what I ended up going with to start. Mm -hmm. In the end. Before we released the album, I wanted to change the name. Huh. I was like, the name's too long. <laughs> it's no one's gonna remember it. Who like, am I going to actually be Edward Sharp? Am I gonna pull a Bob Dylan? Am I, like, what am I, what am I doing? But in the end, it just was sort of what was, and I just sort of let it be. So it was less that I decided I was going to have Alex Ebert. If had come to mean nothing to me. Hmm. I didn't know who I was. I felt like I had no identity. Yeah. And in so in some ways, I was just grasping for straws. I was just like, you know, 
I needed an avenue back to myself. Hmm. And and to do that, I had to sort of invent a thoroughfare that, that wasn't there before. And I guess that moniker and that persona, as you say, um, was sort of that. Well, as with all your I'm a Robot material, 40 Day Dream was written by you solo. But where that first Magnetic Zeros album diverges is that over a third of the record is made up of songs that you co-wrote, um, including the best-known single, Home. Man, oh man, Talk a bit about writing solo versus co-writing and in what ways that that beginning to collaborate was kind of part of that process of discovery for you. Yeah. Well, my mother showed me the very first story that I ever wrote with my hand, or that she has anyway. And it goes, once there was a boy with a big, strong crew. Um... They wanted to travel the world and got into a lot of adventure. They also knew Kung Fu. (laughs) Um, But once there was a boy with a big, strong crew, when she showed me that, I was really like, my jaw dropped. Because that's all I remember wanting as a kid, Hmm. was a big, strong crew. Growing up in L.A., like this diaspora, sort of like neighborhoodless um, world of sort of there was there was always this sense that I was missing like a tightly knit culture thing hmm. um, and and this idea of a crew and when i when I became a, a teenager, like I was really fascinated by gangs and I wanted to be in a gang and hmm. I was in fake gangs and <laughs> and then almost kind of in real gangs and that like totally blew up in my face and there was there was this real desire to have a crew and when I started imagining these songs. 40 Day Dream, um, Home, uh, Jangling, uh, all of these songs, which I did write. I didn't write Home entirely alone, but the music I did. And then 40 Day Dream I wrote alone, but when I did the demo of it, there were background vocals, and I was doing my own background vocals, and there was tons of people, and haze, and hose, <laughs> and claps, yeah. and noises, and tambourines. I, I pictured this giant crew of like traveling troubadours like doing this thing yeah. but i was by myself but i was imagining this <laughs> crew so i really wanted a large ensemble um sort of thing to happen i didn't want that four four man band sort of like you know um sort of you know i didn't want anything that felt um you know economically sort of like compact i right. wanted just this this um this mess of movement hmm. and um so i did I, I had worked up a bunch of the demos and then i was hanging out with jade we were best friends for like you know uh the year preceding uh making home and um and Christian, who was actually in elementary school with me in Ruth's class, oh wow, um, and was is easily my oldest friend, 
um, and he was around and he played guitar and I actually started I'm a Robot with him. It was called 13's Lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was around and he would come to uh, play some guitar and I just started filling the vision of this large house of rooms yeah. with people. I remember Pico, Stuart Cole, who is our trumpet player, I met him at uh, some late night restaurant Fred 62, I think it's called, or 42, or whatever it's called. And um, it was like 4 a.m., and he's like, hey, well, I was like, yeah, yeah. And apparently, according to him, he's like, you know, I play trumpet, and I lit up. I was like, (laughs) you want to come over tomorrow? Like, you know, and and he laid down the the horns for for home and for for jangling. It was just filling this... This this house, and then eventually, you know, I hadn't written the whole written the whole album, and there suddenly was this process. So we're making this album, and everyone's together, and so we started collaborating. And you know, for me, collaboration has been a learning process for me yeah. because there's a certain when you originate an idea, it's your baby. Mm-hmm. But then the baby wants to put on clothes. It wants to grow up. It wants to go climb a mountain. Um, and are you the best seamstress? Are you the best sort of mountaineer for that particular? Do you, you weave the best rope? Because there's a lot of people around. Like this person's a rope weaver. Mm. And this person's a, you know. And so letting go and realizing like, okay, like this is about the baby's life, yeah. not about my life. Mm. This is about... I call it sort of celestial archaeology, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm digging into the ethers of the universe, and I find a spine, and then I find a wing and a this. But then someone else brings, hey, look what I found, and you start putting this animal together, hmm. and you want the animal to be the best it can be, and um, so it was a learning curve for me. Yeah. But but putting the the baby first. Um, <laughs> is uh is always the priority and so that's that's sort of guided me through that yeah yeah well and i look at like when i'm a robot did return you know with the third album another man's treasure on that record all the songs are credited to you and your bandmates and and i listen to a song like ruthless and i hear something that's much more textured and and dreamy than the earlier i'm a robot releases ways did did edward sharp kind of find his way into that process and and what that feels like a a much more realized collaborative album creation in terms of starting from the from the get-go of we're going to do this together yeah i mean that's a great like ruthless is a great example of a song that was really total collaboration um you know uh just sitting in the studio making stuff at once Hmm. and um and that was overlapping with my Edward Sharp, you know, with the Edward Sharp era. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had a bit of a pull too. It was like, do I, do I transform? I'm a robot into my, like my Edward Sharpish expression of where I'm at now, or do I allow it to be what it is, or is it just some sort of hybrid? And so, what I had to let go there is like, well, I'm not. I'm a robot by myself. I'm I'm a robot with these people. Yeah. So what does this thing happen? What happens when we're together? And um, 
and you know and it and then eventually also it took a it took a while because just I, I love writing songs but we eventually got to a place with Edward Sharp too with the with the most recent album where we actually wrote maybe half of the songs all at once together as opposed to me bringing in you know the basics and then and then co-writing from there yeah um, and I gotta say, some of my favorite, favorite, favorite songs um, have come come out of that process. Um, certainly, as you say, there's a certain dynamism to texture when a lot of fingerprints are on something. And you wouldn't have been able to to make that record in that way had you not had the the Edward Sharp thing happen beforehand. It all kind of builds on yeah. on shaping you. Yeah. Um, well, we mentioned the Edward Sharp song "Home" a moment ago, which you know went on to be featured in various films and television shows and, and commercials. Um, and likewise, "I'm a Robot's uh, Greenback Boogie" became the right. theme song for the TV show Suits. As a songwriter, when you're writing songs for a particular album or, or band project, um, and then those songs kind of get picked up or um, you know used for for something else, whether it be a commercial or, or a TV show or whatever, you know it becomes decontextualized in a sense because it it takes on this new meaning by attaching itself to to something else. Um, in what ways, as a writer, can that be? Uh, frustrating and in what ways is that a blessing in terms of you know opening up a wider audience so I grew up in the 90s uh, where selling out was a thing mm -hmm. it literally no longer exists <laughs> um, it was unthinkable to put your song in a car commercial um, it was unthinkable that uh, the best rapper of the day would have a deal with American Express. <laughs> um, so many things were unthinkable back then that now, you know, are sort of commonplace. But still, having and carrying that DNA, it's been really interesting to get offered um, certain things. And there's things... It seems like home... It seems like I've said yes to home for everything because right. it's <laughs> fucking ubiquitous. But... I've actually said no f to a bunch of things. Um, there was, for instance, an AT&T commercial where someone is sitting on a couch in their home and then watching TV, and people pick up the couch and walk the couch all the way to an AT&T store and then drop the couch there um, as if to... S and then the song Home is playing, and it says, like, essentially this is your home, like hmm. AT&T is your home. Right. And I was just watching it, and I was just like, um, I can't do this. Hmm. Yeah. But then, you know, for instance, the very first um, money that the band really received, because I, I, we had no way to support 13 people in a band touring. <laughs> right. Um, we got, a, we got uh, our song Jangling was in a Ford Fiesta commercial. And... I'm a big fan of parkour and, and, and sort of street dance type stuff. And the whole commercial was that. And I was like, and it was also like, you know, uh, an, 
energetically, you know, it wasn't a hybrid, but it was something like it. And I was like, okay, you know, we're going to get a ton of money for this. It's going to support us. We're going to be able to actually be a band because of this. And so we said yes. And, And I remember Andrew Reynolds who's this amazing skateboarder, like just this incredible skateboarder, was going to use our song Om Nashime on this amazing piece in this amazing video called uh, Stay Gold. And I remember he saw that we did that commercial and he was like, he's a kid of the 90s too, and he's yeah. like, I can't use your song now. Wow. And, and he eventually decided, fuck it, I'll use their song. Right. And thank God, because it's a really brilliant moment. But I totally related to that. Like, you know, there's, it, it can be problematic. Now, for me now, understanding sort of, you know, having a kid, having a, a mortgage, having a life where I like, you know, and not only that, having 13, 14, 16, sometimes when then you have a crew, people depending on income to live. Mm-hmm. You sort of, you know, the realities become, you know, we're in an age of the Medici. It's Coca-Cola and whatever else are the Medici. We no longer, we're not in the 90s where you can make a bazillion dollars just from album sales alone. Yeah, I was going to say nobody's buying records anymore, which is a huge factor. No, we're in an age where like the rich people are, are, are sort of supporting the artists. Um, And they actually really care is the other thing. Yes, they're doing it for their brand, but they actually care. So it's an interesting, interesting balance. For me, what's been far more difficult, speaking of home, is listening to all of the, essentially, uh, I hesitate to call them home ripoffs, but songs that sound incredibly like home being used for all those commercials um, in ways that to me suddenly remove me enough where I'm able to sort of just witness the sort of commodification of the home tropes. The ding, 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 hey! Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> like the acoustic guitar in the haze. Right. Um, and even the girl singing and the boy singing back and forth, that whole thing has been... What I wanted to Im- imbibe into culture with that song was actually an unprofessionalizing of professionalism. It was a porous sort of... A porous humanity but of course what was gleaned from it instead were just the general sort of pop like sort of culturally sort of like identifiable elements like haze stomps acoustic guitar back and forth some trumpet solo right and then made totally slick and unporous right. and unhuman right right and um like, so let's boil this down to but, the elements, but then, like, heavily process it. Yes, let's <laughs> boil it down to the elements that worked, process it to shit. And it worked. I mean, like, there's yeah. bands out there that have made a killing um, with songs that sound... Uh, one of them, in particular, which I won't mention right now, literally, I ha- we had to go to a song... Like, we almost sued this band, because mm. it's... We would get calls, oh, I heard you on the iPod commercial, congrats, yeah. and we're like... It's this. It's because it's the same song. It's not us, <laughs> right. but it's the same exact chords. Yeah. Everything. So, I guess seeing 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 sort of how the commodification of sort of sonics works has been, um, you know, that's been tough to chew on in a certain way because what I wanted to offer with the, that whole first album was a sort of DIY porous. Um, movement-oriented sort of like 
the same thing. The, the kids in, the, in, in elementary school banging on tambourines and singing out a key and music for music's sake. I wanted that to be what we communicated. Right. And instead, what ended up getting picked up and happening was it was boiled down to its core elements and then produced um, far more slickly and yeah, um, yeah. and uh, iterating on the success. So yeah. that's been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I keep coming back to, to influences, um, but I want to talk about your 2011 debut solo album under your own name, simply called Alexander. Um, I hear a song like Truth from that record, and I, and I hear those hip-hop influences that were so formative in your teen years kind of coming back into play. Um, maybe this is the beginning of you fully kind of putting back together your identity, but talk about writing and releasing a record where, you know, you created all the songs, you played all the instruments, you essentially are now introducing the world. You're ready to say, okay, here's Alex Ebert. <laughs> talk, talk about that, that kind yeah. of moment for you. Yeah, that was really important for me. So as much as I had always written uh, most of the songs of, of things, um, I'd never felt like a real musician. Um, I was a songwriter, and then I'd always hand things off um, to the people who could really play. And, um, and that was sort of my writing process, you know. And um, even when I'd enter countries and they'd be like occupation i'd always feel like a fraud putting musician i'd be like <laughs> artist you know or, right. or songwriter right but um but i was like okay i really need to just i for my own self and sanity i'm, I'm just gonna play absolutely everything and have this moment also because suddenly now i was in this hyper communal space with edward sharp that i had to have something an outlet that was just sort of you know my own tinkering and um so that was really important for me and um, I made it um, while on tour. So I was in an extreme work mode. Um, we'd get, we'd be done with the show. I'd go into the hotel room and work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that's, and that's how I made all that. And it was totally a return, especially truth. Um, truth was like, okay, I'm going to dip my toe <laughs> back into my primary formative influence, which is hip hop. Truth is that I haven't shook my shadow And every day is trying to trick me into doing battle Calling out faith, I want to get me rattled Want to pull me back behind the fence with the cat Building your lenses, digging your trenches Put me on the front line, leave me with a dumb mind With no defenses, but your defenses If you can't stand to feel the pain, then you are senseless And of course, you know, to me, that song ended up being really the representative of that album and the thing that, you know, to this day, people will come up and say, home means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. I mean, people get married to it. They, you know, you know, there's jokes about, there's like, you know, home is, means a lot to a lot of people. And I love that. It means a lot to me. But very often when people come up to me and they sort of pour their heart out to me and they like, say thank you and look in my eyes, they refer to truth hmm. um, as this important song to them. Right. And, um, and, and that is special to me. Um, and to see people covering that song or to see people quoting that song or, you know, getting tattoos of that song... Um, the lyrics in that are really, really important to me. And it's one of those few songs that like, 
the whole thing is built the whole thing is about the lyrics you mm -hmm. know it's just about this really simple idea that your darkness is shining and my darkness is shining and embracing the darkness you know within us and um and that's that and and i think that you know and then you know to get the rizza um you know from wu-tang clan right. which i don't know if you know but he did yeah. a he did a he did a verse on it uh, on a on an alternate version um yeah, it's just a, it's pretty dreamy. Your teenage self would have just oh my god, <laughs> never <laughs> believed, never. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, well, where I hear kind of some of those hip hop elements on Alexander, I hear country elements on uh, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros second album here from 2012, um, particularly on songs like "That's What's Up" and on the album opener "Man on Fire." Everybody wants safety. curious is is country music ever consciously been a factor for you and in, in your, your yeah writing? so I kind of left out one one other thing so my dad played opera when I was a kid but then when we would go on road trips he never played opera though he played two things he would play Vangelis so like really epic new age you know right. he did the chariots of fire theme yeah or he would play um a combination of, you know, that era of country music that encapsulates sort of the golden years of Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, um, Chris Christopherson, and um, the Highwaymen, basically. Yeah. And he would play them. And I think he, for him, I think, it, and Emmylou Harris, who he loves. And, and he would play them sort of, I don't know if it was ironic, because we're always going through the Southwest cowboy country right but that's what would be playing and he would be like alex alex come up here come up here come up here let me tell you about this song he called me mikey mikey mm -hmm. come up here <laughs> all right listen to this song and he i think it was a boy named sue and 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 he would t walk me through the lyrics and um about how that you know him and his dad were in this fight and da, 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 da. and he'd be like it's like me you know and he 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 glorified the idea of like strife between father and son huh. and um and made me sort of end up glorifying it too you know <laughs> right. and, and ironically our our relationship really did end for a number of years because of a of a of a near physical altercation hmm. and um but he would explain to me these these songs and it wasn't anything that i consciously ever thought about until um starting to do guitar music like acoustic guitar music and yeah. suddenly it started coming back yeah well, um, well, with the self-titled third Edward Sharp album in 2013, um, I also hear a good bit of, of classic R&B influences on songs like Life is Hard and, and Better Days. Mm -hmm. um, there's a different character to that album, um, yeah. which, again, featured quite a few uh, co-writes. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe the, the previous record was, was more you, you know, kind of, kind of operating solo. Yeah. Um, how do you, as a writer at this point in your career know instinctively like it's time to collaborate mm. versus it's time to it's time to hunker down 
Um, well, I have a the big strong crew. Once there was a boy with a big strong crew is sort of the guiding force that I try and keep coming back to. And Wu Tang Clan, honestly, is is also like an inspiration in that. And I'm trying to I try to balance my own songwriting efforts. Um, I started to try and balance my own songwriting efforts with a desire for each person in the band to feel expressed mm. themselves. Yeah. Um, be it they're you know supporting them and needing to do uh, uh, solo albums, or uh, being able to have songs um, under the under the guise of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and um, and I think sensing someone's pent up creativity, there, there's almost no more distinct um, tacit emotional energy than pent-up creative energy <laughs> and and you know when I start to feel like the tremors of that in the rest of the band it really is always like cold water and I'm like oh my god I need to help these people facilitate their expression of what they need yeah um, regardless if it's necessarily in the band or outside of the band um, and you know for better for like sometimes that's a very that can be really run counter to what a song wants right I mean Sometimes the most difficult thing in this band is a song may really want to be acoustic guitar and vocal. Right. But you got, what, 12 other people that, what are they going to do, smoke yeah. a cigarette? <laughs> right. Like, you know, they, like you feel the weight of the desire for engagement. Right. And, um, and that can be an interesting thing. It's like, okay, well, maybe actually then that song isn't an Edward Sharp song. Right. But then... You know, I don't want to praise a good example. It's basically acoustic guitar and vocal and like slaps and claps and a and a bass drum. How satisfying is it going to be musically for us to do that for a whole for a whole album and tour right. that? Um, can people can we get along with an idea of you know um, playing just the tambourine when you're a drummer? Yeah. Um, so these are all questions that sort of end up molding what kind of songs we end up making. Mm. Is that transition reflected in the fact that your last record had the name Edward Sharp crossed out? And basically, I mean, is is do you think future albums will just be called the Magnetic Zeros? I mean, is that is that is it that much of a transition, or did you just want to emphasize on this record that like, hey, this really is a collective? I was going through a thing where I was thinking about trying to get, you know kill Edward Sharp. Yeah, yeah, um, and there was a certain burden of having to continually answer for who is the persona Edward Sharp. And it started to sort of exhaust, I started to exhaust my, um, my descriptions of, of exactly what was going on there. And yet now, I no longer feel that way. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it no longer feels serious to me. You know, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a transition for us because Jade had left the band and... We wanted, and and I was I was also feeling the like releasing myself of the burden of writing for the band. Mm -hmm. It's like, look, I'm all, I'm trying to split all my publishing with you guys. I, I did that for a long time, and then I and then I started splitting half of my publishing right. with them for the stuff that I wrote. But all of our publishing, you know, whatever we all wrote together, of course we'd split. But what I wanted the band, I, what I finally wanted 
And I started to end up feeling like this slight resentment, actually, where I was like, okay, well, if we're going to be a band and a big, strong crew, and we're really going to do everything together, but everyone else is going on vacation while I finish the album for nine months. <laughs> right. Let's do this all together then. Let's yeah. sit together, let's write the songs, and let's hack through it. Hmm. Because, you know, let's all do this work together. And so that's what we did on the last album for, for a lot of it. Yeah. And, um, and I'm glad. So, some beautiful stuff came out of it. The band is just chock full of talent. Um, and I think that we'll try and continue somewhat with that. Yeah. yeah. You scored the 2013 film All Is Lost, uh, starring Robert Redford as a, a sailor lost at sea, which earned you a, a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. There's like no supporting actors in that film, virtually no dialogue, which means there's even more pressure on the music you know, to, to help tell the story. Um, talk about how that opportunity came about and, and how you approached the process, which I would imagine is very different than, than making a record. Yeah, man. Um... First of all, I got a call out of the blue. Uh, there's a movie. The director's interested in meeting with you. It's about a guy out at sea starring Robert Redford, and there's no dialogue. <laughs> and instantly, I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? This <laughs> but is, no pressure. <laughs> no, yeah. Like, I was just an instant yes. Um, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe it's my grandfather's sort of, you know, uh, being an opera director and, and my, my dad being so into classical music. Um, but there was always something for me um, about composition that had no words and, and sort of being of service to a story. Hmm. Um, but when I read the script, I instantly thought of um, another album that my dad would blast, um, which was the score to The Mission oh, yeah. um, by... Um, by um, uh, Morricone. Morricone. Yeah, yeah. And Morricone is also who I was inspired by to create the Hayes, Hoes in mm. Home and various other songs. Yeah. Um, Morricone, like watching all Spaghetti Western when I was a kid. So anyway, I thought of that score to the mission. I had a meeting with the director, uh, JC, and I told him, I was like, what I hear is the score to the mission. And he said, shut the fuck up. That's my favorite thing. You know, he's like, that's my favorite score. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, so I so I somehow got like sight unseen in a certain way the the gig, and um, went down and saw some of the production. Started writing before I saw any of the movie, and the very first melody that I wrote became the main um, melody, the, wow. the 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 all is lost melody. Um, what was really interesting though is that I wrote it essentially a waltz. I, I, and then I'm sitting there and I'm watching the film and I, and I score it for the very first time. I have the keyboard in front of me, which I figure is just going to be a throwaway demo. Yeah. And I'm watching it and I start playing the, the, the score I'd written and it completely changes. Hmm. And as I'm playing it, it goes from like a waltz to a dirge. And that first take ended up being the take wow. that everything was based around. Like I hadn't... It was really fascinating because huh. I'd written it as a waltz and then I'm sitting there, it turns into a dirge. But that first take of it turning into a dirge is the one yeah. that stuck.
Well, in 2017, you released a solo single called Broken Record mm. that, that kind of fuses pop and, and hip-hop and even a bit of jazz. And, you know, though you grew up in, in L.A., you, you live in New Orleans now. And I don't want this question to be as simple as, hey, I hear some jazz influence. Is that New Orleans? But, <laughs> you know, I am curious if, if you feel like a, a sense of place kind of informs your writing and, and in what ways having relocated to New Orleans, which is a very different environment, might have um, had some influence on you. It was funny. I was in a conversation with someone, an A&R, the other day, and, um, and I mentioned urban music. And she said, um, well, you know, someone is bringing up recently that uh, in a book that uh, urban music shouldn't be called urban music. It should be called black music. And then I was thinking about that. And I was like, well... In that case, basically all music that is not sort of like pre-whatever, uh, so everything from jazz to rock and roll to hip-hop and everything in between, is black music. Right. And where that started was all New Orleans. Hmm. Um, that's a simplified version. <laughs> but when you go, when, when I'm in New Orleans, I feel that history, the birthplace of that blues and jazz, that 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 emanation, mm -hmm. um, that warm darkness, that warm depression, that uh, that creates a necessity for joy and and transcendence through the music, and I don't have you ever been to a second line, mm -mm, um, no. like a death parade essentially. No, it's a tr tradition where you you really celebrate the death of someone by celebrating their life yeah and with dance and in the street and um and and true celebration music and um to me that's what everything has always been about it's about life is about confronting death with defiant jubilation hmm. and um and new orleans sort of encapsulates that for me and and by living there I feel like in some ways it gives me permission, a little more permission to speak from that place. Hmm. Um, now that said, there's also just the fact that I'm surrounded by these amazing musicians who are musicians for the sake of music. There is no sense of sort of like commodification of their musicianship. Huh. They, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever recorded anyone during the day who didn't have a gig that night that hmm. paid like fifteen dollars. Right. Like everyone there is just about the music, and that has a certain effect on you. You know. Sure. Um, yeah, and it sort of holds you to a, a standard of purity in a way. It does. Yeah. It keeps you. It keeps you sort of humble. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I definitely want to talk about your new album, I vs. I. Um, how did you know, okay, it's, it's time to make another solo record under my own name now? Okay, so I knew, I knew it was time to, to, for another expression for myself. Um, but what was driving it was a real need to completely prove to myself that I was not beholden to any brand. To completely claim my lack of coherence hmm. as my superpower. Hmm. So that, oh, well, he was a punk rock and now he's a hippie and you can't, and then, you know, composing 
for All is Lost and A Most Violent Year and Feast and whatever, broke that open a little bit for me. They provided like a fourth dimension where it was suddenly like, in my own perception of myself, I was suddenly like, okay, I can do anything in terms of I want to follow wherever the muse goes and I want to be able to trust that. And if the muse is going here, I want to follow that. And if it's going there, I want to follow that. And it started to break it open for me where I'm like, okay, I'm composing stuff that sounds nothing like, you know, it has so much more in common with like what a Henry Mancini than it does with anything else. Mm. Or, or, and then I'm, and, and so what is this, what is this multidimensionality that I'm experiencing with myself? And can I just claim it as what it is for me, which is the thing that brings me joy, which is to just follow that muse wherever it goes. And suddenly I was just like, okay, yes. And I turned back again to like, like my initial love of music that was my own, my first claim to music, which was hip hop. And the thing I'd essentially been avoiding um, this whole time. Mm, right. <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, well, if I really don't give a fuck, then... I will do basically something that um, that is essentially career suicide, hmm. and that's how I started the process. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, and I do hear like I mean songs like "Stronger" and "Automatic Youth." I mean they're they're melodic, but also this is the most beat heavy project I think that you've done overall you know the 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 beats are kind of up in the mix they're front and center Mm -hmm. like so you have this interplay of the the melodic which is certainly a huge part of your personality but with more of an emphasis than I think ever before on kind of the beat aspect of it which harkens back to that kind of um hip-hop thing um which we've kind of touched on it, but I haven't really explicitly asked. And, I, and I'm, I'm curious about this. You know, I listen to those songs. I listen to her love, which is really a, a pretty simple approach to production. I mean, it feels full, um, but there's not a lot of instruments. There's not mm-hmm. a lot going on. It just has a, it, it has what it needs. talked about when you write um whether or not you just kind of sit down with a a piano or a guitar and and you write and you you worry about you know production later or if you are more producing as you are writing and and creating kind of the sonic structure as opposed to just the bare bones of of the song i love doing both um this album was largely producing and writing at the same time yeah I'd, i'd i'd very often with this album start the way that I did when I was a kid, which would be with a beat, uh, back then with a sample, um, but but then, you know, here with just like, uh, I don't know, this sound, and, and I'd yeah. start with this sound, and then I'd start, and then I'd start freestyling over it. And so a lot of the lyrics were coming out of these freestyles, hmm. um, and the melodies were coming out of just these, record. I would record, I was always recording, so I would be recording a melody and recording a, and you know, and then yeah. and then sort of 
picking that apart and then um and sometimes it would happen um really quickly and naturally her love is a great example to me of that's one of my favorite songs on it that's the least sort of hip-hop but it is just a break beat yeah um an incredible bass playing from um this guy donald ramsey in new orleans um and a saxophone break that like intermittently comes you know in between some vocals and then a marimba and some and a synth and that and that's it and it's like how that song came together i think that's part of what i loved about doing this was only putting into the mix what needed to be there but then having fun experimental times where you know things can really suddenly shift or with that song for instance taking a full 32 bar saxophone solo yeah. like that's that's something you know i wouldn't have let myself get away with in in the context of you know a band yeah yeah, yeah. I and mean, i think the to me the through line of all of this is just the willingness to follow your creativity where it takes you yeah and i think that's um you know it's really inspiring to to see somebody who's going to say, well, I'm not going to always do like the thing that I do. I, I want the thing that I do to be the fact that I'm not really, you can't really pin it down. And I think that's really inspirational. It's, it's very cool just to, as I hear you talk about all this, it all makes that much more sense uh, when, cool. when, you, when you kind of put it all yeah. together, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really, um, and that really helped me because the last four years of my life have been tough. It was like a breakup with baby mama and all these things that ended up really this album actually tracks from beginning to end as a chronicle of that of my mindset and breaking up and and the whole thing yeah. automatic youth being really specific about it but um and then her love being sort of finding love again yeah um so it's been really with edward sharp i was really avoiding the personal hmm. um i was making it more about sort of visions of communal grandeur mm-hmm. um and it has been a long time since I allowed myself to get emo about, you know, <laughs> what I'm going through or right. my sadness or that right. I might be depressed or um, that someone left me or that I or that something broke up or that, you know, or my kid asking me about death. Um, it's been a long time. But when I listen back to the stuff I was making back then, I'm like, it's still embarrassingly personal. Yeah. And there's something really courageous about that that I wanted to... Um, test to see if I could do again. I think yeah. that, yeah. You can take the kid out of the 90s, but you can't take the 90s <laughs> yeah, out of the Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Alex, this has been uh, really great. I cool. appreciate you coming by today and uh, and giving us some insights into your, to your work. This is awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.